Welcome to Have You Heard, the AABP podcast. My name is Dr. Fred Gingrich. I'm the executive director of AABP, and today we are joined by Dr. Matthew Quinn. Matt, go ahead and introduce yourself, please, for our guests. Hi, well, thank you, Fred. Uh, my name is Matt Quinn. Um, uh, kind of a little bit about my background. I grew up on a feedlot in north central Texas, so kind of grew up in and around um, the cattle industry and decided at a young age that uh, I was pretty passionate about the feedlot industry and beef cattle production and um, decided I wanted to go to school to become a nutritionist. So uh, graduated with my BS degree from Texas A&M University in animal science and then followed up with a master's degree at Kansas State University uh, in feedlot nutrition or ruminant nutrition more specifically, and then continued on with a uh, PhD at Texas Tech University, um, again, focusing on ruminant nutrition with the feedlot emphasis, um, and uh, have been working or currently working for feedlot health management services as a production consultant here for the last seven years. I'm also uh, the team lead for our performance enhancement product and protocols module. Uh, so that's a service module that centers in and around uh, performance enhancement products and growth technologies. Um, you know, chief among those being implants, but really anything associated with performance enhancement, feed additives, beta agonists, things of that nature. Well, fantastic, and and uh, we we uh, welcome you to our podcast, Matt. I'm excited about talking about this topic because we get a lot of questions about implants, and and I'm I'm sure that many of our veterinarians and and consultants that work routinely with larger feed yards are pretty familiar with implants, but a large portion of our membership and our listeners that maybe do some dairy work or some smaller type operations that they're not dealing with on a day-to-day basis, maybe are not familiar with uh, growth-promoting implants, and that's the topic of our conversation today. So let's just start off, Matt, and explain to us what are the types of implants used in cattle based on their active ingredient. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a good place to start. So um, I'd say we generally divide those into really two or three camps. The main ones kind of being estrogenic type implants. And those will be um, implants that are primarily based on and contain, you know, estradiol 17 beta or estradiol benzoate. Um, and, And then we move on from there. We've got some androgenic type implants. Okay. And the, the active compounds um, in androgenic implants would be kind of either testosterone propionate or trenbolone acetate, which is a testosterone analog. Um, and then there's, there's really a, a third group um, in there that, that is probably most common and most familiar to a lot of folks that have utilized implants before um, and are generally used a lot in confined feeding operations. And those would be the combination implants. And those combination implants generally contain some type of uh, estradiol in combination with trenbolone acetate, why we call them a combination implants. And you, those are kind of um, uh, found in, in a wide range of doses and, and are used in a wide range of applications. All right. And then we also have, uh, if you could explain to us, Matt, you know, the, the difference between a traditional implant, what that means, and then an extended release implant. What, what, what does that mean? Yeah. So traditional implants, um, and the one, those are the ones that, that uh, would have been in, in common use for a number of years. Um, those are generally composed of kind of a, a a compressed pellet, um, so some type of carrier that is mixed with an active um, ingredient like a, a TBA or an estradiol. So those are mixed together and compressed into pellets, um, and, and those pellets dissolve over time and, and release hormone into the animal. That's kind of our, our traditional type implant. Um, and again, those will range in um, various doses depending on um, the desired um, dosage or the desired uh, uh, efficacy of those specific target efficacy of those specific implants. What what is and I say recently kind of a new technology. I, I think the the first 
uh, extended release implant was was approved in I believe 2007 now so I'm dating myself a little bit that that's re- that's recent relative to to uh, implants but the extended release implants and and as I go through here I, occasionally I will call those long acting I use those terms interchangeably so if later on we're talking and I say long acting what I'm okay. what I'm really talking about is extended release um, those are implants that um, have been coated in some manner. So usually with some type of polymer coating on the outside. And, and those technologies, um, there's a few of those on the market. Um, those technologies are, are more recent, as I mentioned in, in their release. And um, the really cool thing about those is, is that that coating extends the release of those implants. So Kind of our, and, and I know we'll, we'll likely discuss this a little bit later, but, but, you know, when we think about traditional implant payout, we're usually talking, you know, somewhere in the range of, of, you know, 60 to 120 days, sometimes a little bit longer than that. These extended release implants or long acting implants, as they're sometimes referred to, those, uh, the, the coding technology that's used in those um, actually has, extends the payout on those, and there, a lot of them are labeled for 200 days. There are some older um, extended release implants based on a, a, a celastic rubber pellet that actually will, will release for 200 days as well. A um, little bit different technology in that it's not coded and it's a little bit different release pattern. Um, but really, the two the two primary ones that are used most commonly today um, would have the kind of some some compressed pellets that have a polymer coating on them that extend the payout or extend the release of that hormone. Okay, and that's when when we read terms. And I know that you know I was primarily involved in the dairy industry when I was in practice, and then a little bit of of smaller feeding operations and cow calf operations. And so, one of the things that I've had to do in my uh, 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 role with AABP is is learn the language of of uh, of uh, you know these these uh, various aspects of the entire cattle industry, and one of those terms is implant payout. Some of our listeners may not be familiar with that term, and you kind of mentioned it, but what what does that mean, and why why is that important? Yeah, so implant payout is kind of a colloquial term that we, that we use to describe really the the expected duration of active ingredient lasting or having an effect, eliciting an effect, if you will, biologically in that animal. Okay. So we use payout to kind of describe how long the implant's working, right? And how long we're getting a biological effect or it's stimulating an androgenic effect in that animal. Um, payout is, is pretty uh, important to understand if we're talking about designing programs that are going to optimize the growth potential um, or optimize the efficiency of production in a number of different production phases and production segments. Um, and so it, 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 it's really important that, that we kind of do our due diligence when we're trying to determine or make recommendations as professionals um, in terms of you know, what types of implants we're going to use in certain scenarios so we can understand maybe the limitations or the flexibility of, of, of certain implants compared to others. And there's some general kind of rules of thumb with various um, payout doses, if you will, or, or payout durations. If we're talking about um, some of the lower dose estrogenic implants, we would typically say those have a payout uh, period of roughly 60 to 90 days. That's kind of what we would call the, the, the payout window or the implant window. So I may refer um, occasionally to, hey, we, we need to maximize the implant window here, meaning that if we're, if we're going to be designing a re-implant program or, um, you know, talking about uh, maximizing the, the utilization of, of the growth that we're getting from an implant, we need to maximize that window. So we would call those, those payout um, windows or implant windows in these different ranges. And so a low-dose estrogenic, as I mentioned, is about 60 to 90 days. You know, kind of a, a low to moderate-dose combination implant we, we would expect those to last somewhere between 70 and 100 days where we're getting effective hormone um, release. Uh, the high dose implants in, in terms of the combination ones, 
Uh, we're, we're probably in the range of 90 to 140 days on the long end of those. And the, and the higher dose implants, um, we typically refer to as terminal implants. So when we're talking about um, you know, building an implant program or a re-implant program or staging some of these things in a confined feeding operation, we tend to, we, we want to start with a lower, more moderate dose typically, and then graduate towards a higher dose. And so usually those, those higher dose combination implants will be our terminal implants um, in a confined feeding scenario. And then as we talked about earlier, the long acting or the extended release implants, we would generally plug those into a category of roughly 140 to up to 200 days of duration or, or payout in those scenarios. And that would, that would catch most of them, I think. Okay. And is that, so if, if uh, um, producers or veterinarians are looking for uh, information about how long those implants are biologically active, is that information typically on the, on the product information with each of those implants? That's correct. There's, there's, there's usually, there is a, um, uh, a duration, um, usually published by the manufacturers, um, for use or sometimes on the labels. I know on the extended release, it will say, you know, on the label for up to, uh, 200 days in, in, you know, for steers and heifers in confinement or, or, or something along those labels. There's also a, a number of, um, uh, public data out there, a number of publications that that look at various durations of use and, and some of those things as well. But typically the best source of information for a, uh, you know, for an Im- a particular implant is is going straight to the manufacturer of that implant, looking at the label to find out that duration. Yeah, that's that good goes. information. Why, why do we use implants? What's the benefit uh, uh, to the producer when we're using implants in beef cattle? Does it just make them grow quicker? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, 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 yes, in short, that is, that is definitely uh, one of the benefits there. I mean, typically the, the, um, the expectation of enhanced performance or, or greater average daily grain and gain and greater feed efficiency or improved feed efficiency is, is the general expectation. Um, you know, there, there's several kind of different phases, but if let's, let's take, um, suckling calves for for example right if we use kind of a lower dose estrogenic based implant or an implant that's actually approved for use in suckling calves um, you know we would expect a tenth to a little over a tenth of a pound improvement in average daily gain um, for those animals for the duration of that uh, that implant period right so if we're talking you know a 90 day period we're talking 10 to 12 additional pounds of weight at the end of that period. If we're talking about, you know, steers or heifers um, out there, you know, grazing, um, call it, you know, Flint Hills grass and in southeastern Kansas or or wheat pasture in Oklahoma or something along those lines. Generally, we'll see, you know, in a kind of a, you know, a lower, lower dose combo implant used out on grass, something like that. Kind of 10 to 15 percent improvement in average daily gain just just on grazing. So those implants allow the animals to more efficiently utilize the nutrients um, that they're consuming. And then if we talk about feedlots, um, you know, in feedlots, we're talking about, you know, uh, in most scenarios, um, about a 16 percent improvement um, in gain and roughly a 10% improvement in, in feed conversion. And, you know, in a confined feeding scenario, particularly in today's, um, conditions, right, where, where feed costs are high and efficiency mm-hmm. is really important, um, those implants become, um, necessities for conventional beef production in order to help, um, our feedlots and our, uh, our beef production. Um, operations, uh, maintain profitability and help improve profitability that way. Now, with all of that, uh, all of those improvements in gain and feed efficiency, um, you know, at fixed days on feed, um, when we look at implanted animals versus non-implanted animals, there will be some um, reduction in uh, quality grade associated with that. Because if you think about it from a physiological standpoint, what those implants are doing is they're shifting that growth curve um, later in the feeding period 
or later in that animal's life, that, that mature weight, that, that point in which that animal physiologically mature from a empty body fat standpoint. So we're shifting that curve to later and we're laying down more lean tissue, more muscling at the expense of um, laying down fat, right? And so that's where those improvements in gain and those improvements in, in feed conversion come from. We end up with, with heavier carcasses compared to non-implanted animals, but we do give up a little quality grade at fixed days on feet. That can be overcome if we feed the animals a little longer, feed them to the same physiological endpoint, then we can overcome those differences in, in quality grade compared to, you know, non-implanted animals. Okay, and that 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 makes sense. And I, I would also uh, um, say that these are this is good for consumers in the environment too, because when we utilize these, you know, performance enhancing products, we're making more food, utilizing less resources. That's what the efficiency is. Is that correct? Oh, 100 percent. Yeah. And actually, that was going to be one of my closing statements for today. <laughs> As an industry, and you touched on it perfectly. As an industry, I think we do a pretty poor job of telling the story about how environmentally friendly these growth technologies are. I mean, yeah. we're, we're getting we're we're producing more pounds of bees, beef using less natural resources. So using less land, less feed, less water. And when we do that, we reduce the carbon footprint of the animals. Right. Yeah. And that I mean, that and, and nobody ever talks about that in terms of growth technologies. Uh, we're starting to see that a little bit with some of the growth technologies that have come out. You know, obviously, Elenco recently got a, a beta agonist approved um, with this with a specific statement about ammonia emissions and things like that. Um, but prior to that, we really just. We, we never really told the environmental, the, the positive environmental impact that these these products can have in terms of beef production and reducing the carbon footprint of beef. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. And that's our all of our job in the industry uh, to share that story with our consumers. So thanks. Thanks for saying that, Matt. And let's let's talk a little bit. I've, I've heard of of uh, feedlot consultants doing implant uh, audits. What are some things that 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 um, that listeners can do to monitor, train, uh, to make sure that we're, you know, getting the value out of those products. Yeah, that's no, a good, very good question. Um, I mean, I, I I think you know before I even start talking about that, I mean, I think the important thing to realize is that we can you know, as, as professionals, we can make recommendations for producers. We can make recommendations for, for operations and say, Hey, this is the, we've designed the, the best implant program for your operation. You know, so, but if, if, if that's all we do and we don't monitor that that program is being executed and, and we don't work with crews to train them to ensure that they're utilizing these technologies appropriately, then it, it, it really doesn't matter, right? I, we, we've got to have, we've got to ensure that not only we're making really good decisions and, and providing really good recommendations, but we also have to follow up and, and ensure that those recommendations or, or whatever plan that you as a veterinarian, cons, veterinary consultant um, and the producer decide is the right plan moving forward, got to ensure that that's occurring. One of the one of the ways that we do that is is by conducting implant trainings and evaluations. Uh, the way that I and this is my personal preference. I'm not saying it's it's the right way for everybody to do it, but this is the way I like to do it. So um, typically, it it ends up being kind of a two phase process, right? The first phase is obviously the training part. So I tend to like to to go in and have some type of presentation or classroom type setting, and it doesn't necessarily have to be anything fancy, but go in and, and, and sit down with the crew or with the operation that's going to be um, doing the implanting and talk to them about the, the importance of implants, like uh, some of the information we discussed today, why, why these technologies are so important from a profitability and from an efficiency standpoint um, for the operation. So ensure that everybody knows the importance of it. And then talk about some of the important things relative to um, implant technique. Um, sanitation is a big one. That's one that we really like to spend a lot of time on, um, ensuring that we have good sanitation 
because that is something that we can control, right? There's a lot of things out there we can't control, but um, how clean that ear is before we implant it, um, that is something we can control. And so, um, you know, implant abnormalities related to sanitation are the easiest ones to solve because those are within our control, right? Um, and then talk about technique and some of those things. So explain and have a conversation about why these things are important. Show them why those are important and what, you know, what proper sanitation looks like, um, scrubbing ears, um, ensuring that we've got the proper equipment, that if we have any bird needles or anything like that on implant guns, you know, get rid of those, right? It's just like having a bird needle, you know, with the, with the, with the vaccine or a syringe or anything else, right? Um, you know, what, those, those, those tools or those needles and things and the equipment's relatively cheap. So we can replace them and, and ensure that we have good equipment to start with. So we kind of start by talking about those things and have kind of like a classroom training session, make sure everybody's on the same page. This, hey, this is what we're going to do. This is why we're going to do it. And then I like to take it shoot side, right, and spend some time with the crews. Most operations that I've worked with have, have some familiarity with implanting. So generally, most people are, you know, experienced crews are, are pretty squared away in terms of technique. Um, you know, if you're working with new uh, members, I mean, I, I, I work with a lot of feedlots and processing crews have a, have a, have a history of turnover. Um, so there's usually plenty of plenty of fresh trainees out there, right? In terms of implanting, um, but but if you're starting with somebody new, then spend some time working with them on implanting. Make sure they understand the the, the mechanisms of the gun. So um, there's lots of impl- there's well, I should say there's there's three major implant manufacturers out there, and each one of them has a proprietary gun. So there's three different guns that you kind of need to be aware of, right? Or need to know how to use. Some of those have um, you know, stable needles that don't retract. There's, there's a gun that has a retractable needle. So there's a little, there's a little nuance in terms of the technique there um, and how that, that needs to be used. Um, you know, make sure that we're targeting the middle third of the year with that implant. If we can, that also happens to be a pretty popular spot for ear tags and things like that. So I'd say if, you know, if, if that's your, your first choice is always the middle third of the year, right? And right in the little valley of the year, if you can picture that in your mind, um, it's pretty easy to, to, to recognize when you're looking at a, looking at an ear. If we can't do that because there's tag holes or, or tags or anything like that, our second option is kind of on the top of the ear, um, kind of where the ear rounds and, and kind of bends over and you kind of got a little flat flat point or a flat spot there where you can get that implant needle right underneath the skin and get that done. And then if, if again, if that's unavailable, um, then we go to the ridge of the ear down towards the bottom. Um, we just want to make sure we avoid the cartilage ring and things like that. So spending some time shoot side classroom training, um, that's kind of the first phase. And I, and I like to spend time shoot side because you not only get to work with them on um, implant technique and things like that, but if it's not just a, a re-implant, but maybe a revac or things like that, you can also observe cattle handling, gives you an opportunity to see how, um, you know, how they're handling vaccines or other, um, you know, other uh other things they may be doing at the time of, of processing. And, and so there's, there's always things that I, that I, I, I always learn way more spending time shoot side than I think I will. You pick yes. up on things that, right. And so I think it's always just good and, and it's good to build rapport with those crews because ultimately they have to buy into what we're doing as well. Right. I mean, they need to care about what they're doing. They need to know that we care about what they're doing and we're, and we're there to help them. And so I think just spending some time working with them and it doesn't have to be anything extensive or, or fancy, just, just spend some time shoot side working with them on, on implants. So that's the first phase. Second phase then is what we typically like to do is come back 20, 30 days later and we'll actually do an implant evaluation, implant audit. Mm -hmm. And so we will, we will palpate those ears. Uh, We'll try to usually bring, if we can, you know, if, if it's, if, if we're able to do it, a whole pen of cattle that we implanted and, and usually I like to bring the pin of cattle that we might have implanted when we did the training. That's the that's the best case scenario, right? Sometimes we can do that. Sometimes we can't. Sometimes we just have to do an evaluation on something that was done before. Um, and so we'll palpate those ears and we'll actually check for abnormalities. 
And what's really beneficial there too is is when we're describing abnormalities like uh, you know the implant site abscesses, things like that. If we happen to find, hopefully we have zero, right, and everything's perfect. And I mean that's 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 ideal, right, in terms of in terms of production. But uh, it's maybe not the most beneficial thing when you're trying to train guys and, and point things out to them. Very rarely do we have 100% normal implants, right? Even if we do, even the best crews have some abnormalities sometimes. And so when you find one of those, I like to I like to bring the crew around and have everybody palpate it and say, "Hey, this is abnormal. This is a, this is an abscess." Or you see where um, our technique was off, and you can see, uh, you know, one of the pellets of the implant visibly at the uh, at the implant site. You know, that shouldn't happen. We should have. We should have that implant laying flat in there and completely enclosed by the skin, um, things like that. So I think that those are that's really good follow up and really good uh, training material when we're talking about um, working with crews on effectively utilizing implants. And if you can feel that implant in the ear, does that mean it's still working, or it just means it was placed correctly? Not yes. So if we could palpate an implant in the ear, it doesn't necessarily mean that that implant is still paying out, if that makes sense. So yes. they're often the carriers, um, they in a traditional implant, the carriers will slowly degrade over time. They will. But sometimes we can be 100 days post implant or something like that, and you'll still be able to fill that implant in there. Um, but that depending on the implant, it may have already paid out its hormone. So the best thing to do where we can is to go off of when that animal was implanted last and then what implant was used and go back to our references and say, okay, you know, based on what we know about this implant, this the, the, the payout is over, even though I can still feel you know the, the implant in there. That's that's generally the the carrier that just hasn't fully degraded yet. It's a good question. Yeah, that's that's important. Let's talk uh, a bit, Matt, about some basic considerations for the various types of production systems that we see throughout the uh, whole production chain on beef. And let's start with suckling calves, uh, which you mentioned briefly before. But maybe also, are there considerations for heifers as well in those groups of animals? Yeah, I would say that's the most common question when we're talking about suckling calves is right. um, what about heifers? What about my replacements? Right. And, and if we if we don't have that determination um, at that point in time, which, you know, I would say most of the time that is the case. We're not exactly sure which ones we're going to retain or, or how many we're going to retain. Um, as long as we're using one of those again. We need to ensure that we're using the implants according to the label, right? So we're not implanting them at birth, right, at day one, uh, but that we're actually waiting um, until until the uh, you know until the the label is consistent with the the days of age for that implant. But generally speaking, if if um, we use the low dose kind of estrogenic implants, so. If, like the xeranol-based imp implants, like a Ralgro or a CFXC or something along those lines, right? If we use those during the suckling period, um, there's there's a, a small chance that you can affect pregnancy in um, replacement heifers, but we minimize the impact there. And um, for the rest of the population of heifers, the ones that maybe we're not going to retain, we're going to sell as feeders, those pounds actually um, are worth quite a bit of money, right? Um, so, Practically speaking, if we use, you know, some of the some of the published work would suggest that, you know, less than a percent if we use a Ralgro, a single Ralgro during the suckling phase in, in heifers that we decide then to keep as replacements later in breed. So less than a, a percent of reduced uh, pregnancy rate. Um, if we, you know, if we use something that's maybe a little bit different, it's got estrogen and maybe, you know, like a Cinevac C, if we use that during the suckling phase and then we end up retaining all those heifers, you know, we may, we may impact pregnancy, you know, up to 3%, something like that in terms of a reduction. Um, but, uh, but again, I think, I think the, the thing to keep in mind here is, is we, we probably need to run that kind of cost benefit analysis, right? We need to see, okay, you know, what, um, what, 
what are what are feeder cattle worth? How many do I think I'm gonna um, keep as replacements versus how many am I gonna am I gonna sell? What is that um, live calf worth? Um, you know, in that heifer in terms of pregnancy. Now, I, I will say this though: if we get out past that suckling period and we um, we use two implants or wait till they're yearlings that have been implanted with a combination implant. Um, you know, some of the published data there would say you, you start to have a larger impact on pregnancy rate. Okay. So there's a, a study um, that was that was published looking at uh, um, yearling heifers that were on grass that were implanted with a combination low dose, but a combination TBA estradiol implant. I think they saw an 18 percent reduction in pregnancy when they were bred 82 days after that implant. Right. And then they saw a little bit of a reduced uh, pregnancy rate the following year as well. So, um, you know, again, when you get into that scenario, and I know not everybody can plan that far in advance, and sometimes market conditions change, and what you thought you were going to do changes, and things like that, or it it's not raining, and then all of a sudden we get a lot of rain, and it's like, hey, we need to retain some of these, right? Um, which is what we're all hoping for this year. But yes, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so, so sometimes things change and markets are dynamic, right? I mean, we're, we're all well aware of that in, in the ag industry and in, in livestock production in general. So th- that's when you really need to sit down um, and, and, and do a, a deep dive into some economics and really look at, at how you would evaluate those additional pounds versus um, retaining those heifers in, you know, in terms of what that reduced pregnancy rate might mean for the overall profitability of, of the of the operation. That makes sense. Let's talk also, Matt, about stockers and backgrounders. And if you could, for our listeners that may not be familiar with those terms, uh, what does that mean? And then what would be some considerations for that uh, group of cattle? Yeah. Yeah. So we commonly lump stalkers and backgrounders together. Mm-hmm. Um, stalkers. So I'll, I'll put it this way. All stalkers are backgrounders, but not all backgrounders are stalkers. If that makes sense. So the way that I look at it is, is a stalker operation in, in more of that traditional sense is an operation that they're going to, they're going to buy calves and they've got some grass ground, right? Whether that's the wheat pasture or summer grazing or something like that, and they're going to run those those cattle on on uh, on grass, maybe straighten them out if they're a little bit high risk, and and um, and run those on primarily a mostly grass based operation, right? Um, backgrounders would differ a little bit in that, like I said, sometimes we'll call grass operations backgrounders. Um, but then also, you know, backgrounders can have confined pens and it can look very similar to a, um, a finishing feed yard. But the, the primary business of a backgrounder is that, again, you take these calves um, from some origin and you feed them for a certain period of time and, and you, quote unquote, straighten them out or uh, improve the, the health outcomes there or grow them to a heavier weight and either sell them as feeders or maybe retain ownership and send them to a finishing yard, but we're not actually finishing those cattle. And then there's some combination in between where you can have guys that may take, you know, cattle and run them on grass for a period of time, then bring them into pens, um, add a little bit more weight and then send them on to a feedlot. Uh, but you know, if it, to get back to the kind of the stalkers, um, you know, most commonly the implants that we would use kind of out on grass and in a stalker operation, um, probably the most popular ones would be some low dose, uh, low dose um, TBA estradiol combination uh, type products specifically for grass. Um, there are also some estrogenic um, estrogenic based implants that have been used uh, historically for stalker operations. Um, you know, generally speaking, those, and I think I mentioned this earlier, but we're looking at roughly a, you know, a 15% improvement in, in average daily gain and kind of for steers um, in a stalker operation. And then, you know, 10 to 15% um, for heifers, somewhere in that range. Uh, the one thing I would say about, about grass-based implant payout or, or implant returns mm-hmm. um, is that, you know, Again, it's if we implant animals, 
the the implant is going to do what the implant does. But the larger, the the higher the plane of nutrition, the more that we're going to see that separation and that spread, if that makes sense. If we think about it in a proportional manner, right? So if we if we kick cattle out on on pretty poor grass or, or very low quality grass, and in general the baseline growth is pretty low, you know, even if we implant those animals, we're still getting more out of that lower um, plane of nutrition but it may not be as visible as if those animals are on a high plane of nutrition, if that makes sense. Right. So kind of, we think about it proportionately. And I think that probably goes, um, uh, it'd be a similar, it kind of be a similar um, approach in terms of a backgrounding operation. So if we think about a backgrounding operation with, um, uh, you know, lock with, cattle in a pen and we're feeding some silage based diet, maybe we throw in a little bit of grain or, or maybe some byproducts right in the Midwest. Maybe we have some, you know, wet to solar grains and silage based diets, something like that. Um, again, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're typically going to want to target a lower or moderate dose implant for kind of that backgrounding phase. Um, again, we've got them on a little higher plane of nutrition. So we'll tend to see a little bit more, um, out of that, uh, uh, out of that diet in terms of what the what the implant is going to going to benefit here. One thing I will mention um, in terms of stalkers and backgrounders is um, there are so there we do have traditional type implants um, for those grass phases. Right. But then there also there are some extended release or long acting implants for grass based uh, production, right? During that production phase. And so, you know, typically um, what we will say is if you're kind of, if you're going to be in that kind of 90 to hundred day grazing um, season or, or duration of grazing, using a traditional grass, you know, grass type implant is probably going to get you where you need to be. Now, if there's a, a little more complex type operation where, Hey, maybe we're going to get some early grazing on, on some wheat, and then we're going to bring those cattle in, you know, um, to some to some backgrounding pens for a period of time and then put them back out on, you know, some summer grazing or something like that. And we're looking at an extended um, length of, of grazing or an extended length of, um, of backgrounding, extended duration, I should say. There is that, that may be a, a consideration when we're talking about um, creating an implant strategy there. And there is a long acting um, implant out there that will will slowly pay out over time. Um, you generally need to be over, I would say, over 140 days in, in that length of time that you're going to have those animals at your site or at your facility um, for that to be cost effective. So over 140 days up to potentially 200 days. You can also re-implant those cattle with another, um, you know, lower dose implant as well, somewhere around day 100. If if you're unsure of what that that the second part of that grazing season um, is going to entail, but that's not always an option. It's not always viable for a lot of people, especially when we talk about extensive grazing operations, right? Where you're going to handle those animals, you know, one time, and then you're going to kick them out, and you're going to see them when it's time to round them up and bring them in, right? So. Yep not always a viable option for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And then finally, let's talk about that finishing phase, the feedlot phase considerations for implants there. Um, sure. There's several of them. And then also, is there any difference between, you know, your native beef breeds and then maybe your crossbred dairy breeds or your, you know, your Holsteins that are, that we're feeding now uh, in feedlots? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we could have an entire podcast yes. <laughs> dedicated to those strategies, right? Yeah, uh, but I'll, I'll try. I'll try to make it brief here. Typically, the, the first the first question I ask when somebody's asking for recommendations relative to implants in, in the feedlot is, okay, how are we going to market those cattle? Right? Are we selling these cattle live? Is that the goal? Are we selling them? Um, are we selling based on carcass weight or are we going to grid these cattle, right? So we're, we're, we're incentivized for quality grade and yield grade and some of those things. And we're, and we're, we're, we have to pay some discounts if, if we, if we go past the thresholds on some things, right? So what, once you've established exactly how, or 
and you don't know how you have to know exactly how, but it, it's good to have a plan before you get started, right? Once you know how that is going to happen, um, then you're going to want to know, okay, can we reimplant these cattle? What, you know, what weight are they coming in? How long do we think they're going to be on feed? Because that's going to play into managing implant windows and maximizing the payout of those implants that we're investing in, right? Once we've kind of established those things, um, then we go, okay, based on how we're going to market these cattle, we can either do kind of a moderate program, which is a little bit lower hormone dose um, throughout the feeding period, or we can go aggressive, right? And aggressive, think, if we think about an aggressive implant strategy, that's something where we're, we're trying to capture as much performance and as much feed efficiency and gain and carcass as we can. And we're not as concerned about you know, things like quality grade or, or other things like that, right? Other considerations too, that depending on the weight of the animals coming in, depending on the type of the animals coming in um, and, and where they're coming from, if in, in some of these aggressive scenarios, we can run into behavioral issues, right? Things like bullers, um, you know, uh, when we get really aggressive on TBA on occasions, particularly in steers, we can elicit some bullying effects related to uh, high doses of TBA, right? Uh, so that's in consideration. And I think that's a good segue to, to roll into the dairy beef or the um, dairy influence populations as well, because um, that is one thing that is particularly um susceptible to bullying activity when we get really aggressive with implants is mm. um, dairy influence animals, whether we're talking about purebred Holsteins in the feedlot or whether we're talking about what's really popular today or increasing in popularity is uh, beef on dairy type animals. So crossbred animals, um, we, we tend to <clears throat> treat those similar, those two populations similar in terms of how we would, um, how we would develop an implant strategy. Um, because because they do tend to be more susceptible to riding behavior. Um, the other things to to take into account there um, would be uh, if if we're not able to reimplant at the facility, then what long acting implants do we want to use? And if if we do have a dairy influenced population and we want to use a long acting. Um, you know, which one of the, you know, which, which of the, the implants on the market should we use in that population? And what are some of the effects that each one of those can be? Uh, because not all of those extended release implants pay out in a similar manner. So there's, there's a bit of differences in terms of the coding technology where some may have an initial spike of TBA that then trails off. And then the, the other part of the implant is actually coated and it wears off around day 70 to 90. And then you get a secondary spike in TBA and that trails off all the way to 200 days versus another implant where all the pellets are coated and they all degrade kind of in a similar fashion. And it's kind of a slower buildup and then you peak and then a slower tail off, right? Mm. Those things, particularly in the dairy influenced population, those things can have a large impact on, on bullying behavior. Um, so you, you want to be very careful. Now, there is some um, information that actually we have published that's out there in the public domain looking at um, long-acting implants in, in these uh, dairy-influenced populations, primarily in, in uh, purebred Holstein steers fed in the feedlot. Um, other things to consider with the, with the dairy cross population is delaying the initial implant, right? Um, you know, particularly when we talk about um, uh, some of these strategies in light of maybe some of the upcoming rule changes uh, related to to implants and traditional implants moving forward. Right. So I, that's a that was a very high thirty thousand foot view, but I, I let me know if we need to go if we need to dive deeper there. No, I think that's uh, that's really good uh, good information, Matt. Which kind of leads us into you kind of talked about reimplants and 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 some regulations. So when we're looking at reimplanting cattle, what are some things that we should consider in terms of efficacy, cost, you know, legal implications, et cetera? Yeah, so it's hard to it's hard to to to. St- start talking about reimplant strategies without first addressing 
um, some of the reinterpretation of, of uh, the use of multiple implants in a production phase as clarified by FDA here recently. So just to briefly cover that, um, FDA announced recently that um, uh, they have clarified um, their interpretation of um, labels regarding uh, re regarding implants or traditional implants um, and their use in uh, in um, different phases of production. And when we think about multiple implants, usually we're we're really talking about the the finishing phase, right? Where we typically would have um, a number of different reimplant strategies that exist out there. And, um, and so what FDA has, has recently clarified is, and it wasn't, it's not really addressed on the traditional implant labels, but what they have clarified, clarified is that um, unless those implant labels for the traditional implants state that they can be used in part of a re-implant program, FDA's interpretation is that they can, you cannot use those in a re-implant program in the same phase of production. And essentially that means in the finishing phase, right? When you talk about stalkers or backgrounders, where that's typically a single implant or even a suckling calf. We're usually just going to use one implant during those production phases, right? Um, and, and in the feedlot, though, is where we would typically target our re-implant programs. And in fact, a number of um, people on the production side, production consultants, uh, PhD animal scientists have devoted a a good chunk of their career in terms of um, uh, researching reimplant programs and optimizing reimplant programs um, for the finishing phase. And so I, I spoke about this a little bit when we were talking about the native beef um, implant strategies. But if we're looking at um, developing reimplant strategies, uh, you know, one of the things, again, I think it, it goes back to um you know, how are we going to, how are we going to market those cattle? And once we determine whether we're going to go with kind of a moderate tight target for an implant program or an implant strategy versus an aggressive, then we can develop our re-implant strategy as it stands today. So the rule changes aren't coming till the summer of 2023 in terms of the re-implant changes. So until then it's kind of status quo. Um, and so if we're talking about what we can get done today, um, looking at, um, you know, cost effectiveness and, and, and some of those strategies really need to start at the back and say, all right, this is what our goals are for these cattle. How do we build up to those? And usually what we would do is we would start with kind of a moderate dose implant and we'd want to build that dose up over time. Um, and, and usually finish with our, our highest dose as the terminal implant. Um, and, and so those would be some of the things that, that we would look at. There, there are numerous papers out there in the public domain that have been um, published um, looking at reimplant strategies, looking at, at various approaches to implanting um, longer day, you know, longer day on feed cattle that would require multiple implants, managing implant windows, things of that nature. So what my recommendation would be if we're, if we're trying to, to develop a strategy there is look at some of those papers and, and build an economic model relative to the response biologically from each of those, you know, each of those implants to kind of determine what's going to be the most cost effective in a specific scenario and, and build it from that standpoint. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and we'll put a link about that FDA uh, notice in our podcast notes, as well as some uh, publications for our listeners to uh, check out after they've uh, uh, heard uh, this, this uh, episode. And Matt, as we, as we finish up here, um, I want to ask a very simple question, and that is, do implants always pay for producers to use? Yes. Almost always implants pay for producers to use. Um, I kind of hit on this earlier. When we were talking about grazing and, and, and the plane of nutrition and some of those things. And, um, you know, obviously plane of nutrition comes into, a, you know, comes into play here in terms of when we can actually, what, what effect we see when we implant. So those implants do what they do. Um, and we may not always be able to visually see the implant working, right? But there are very few instances where we've formally evaluated in a, in a properly randomized trial 
implanted versus non-implanted animals and not seeing a cost effectiveness to utilizing an implant. And that is across just about every phase of production. Uh, so very few instances where, where that, that, um, that, that would not be something that we would recommend from a production standpoint. Um, and so I'm, I'm obviously biased. This is my world, but yes. again, from a, from a purely yeah. scientific standpoint, it, it become it becomes very, very difficult to argue against using an implant in conventional beef production. Yep. Yep. Well, Matt, this has really been great information uh, uh, for our listeners. Really appreciate your time today. I want to just remind our listeners that you should familiar yourself with the types of implants that Matt discussed today uh, and, and look, seek out those publications, seek out colleagues that are uh, doing feedlot work every single day uh, if you're not in that space for advice. And also you can seek out your technical services veterinarian from the companies that market these implants for information. Make sure you work with the nutritionist to develop an implant schedule for your clients and make sure your clients understand the value of those implants because as Matt stated, they always pay. And I think there's a really good role here uh, for you to develop training and monitoring programs. Matt, did a great job of explaining how uh, they manage that on their client operations, both with classroom training and shoot side training and monitoring. Make sure you're involved in that. There's a lot of opportunity for us to pr provide these consulting services for our clients. And then I think that we also always need to be aware, and, and Matt being a nutritionist certainly understands this, is that we have to make sure that we have appropriate nutrition if we're going to maximize the payout from these implants. So make sure that this, that can also offer another opportunity if, uh, to your customers is, is getting involved with that nutrition program and make sure that we're optimizing that when we are going to use these performance enhancing products. Make sure you check the links and I would challenge our listeners as you're riding around in your trucks today, uh, to your beef operations, ask them how they're utilizing implants plants and get involved in that program. Ask your producers questions, find out what their goals are, how are they marketing their cattle, and, and work with them so they can utilize these products in the most efficient manner for their operation. Matt, I want to thank you again for being a part of our podcast and providing us with this great information. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. I sure appreciate it. It was fun.